Welcome back to the Happy Saver podcast. I'm Ruth, a personal finance blogger here in Aotearoa. Now, sorry for the extra week you've had to wait for my podcast more recently. Johnny and I are trying to find a frequency that is doable, and we think that every third week is fitting in with our workloads and life a bit better. They do take a lot to bring together, and I'd far rather produce content that we're really proud of than rush an episode out that doesn't give the people I've spoken with justice. Now, I always say in my intro that I just chat with people and I learn their story and condense it down, but my problem is I talk too much when I interview people because they are just so darn interesting. Then I have a huge amount of trouble condensing their story down into an edit that is not three hours long. So it's an ongoing battle I face, but I'm back to give it another go this week and you can be the judge if I've succeeded or not in being concise as I crack on with this week's episode. Lucy started our conversation by saying, ask me anything. And that is why I love creating this podcast so much. The longer I blog and podcast, the less sure I am about the common view that people don't want to talk about money, because many of them do if someone just takes the time to ask for their thoughts and opinions. They might not want me to share their real names, and that was the case for today, but they want to share their experiences in the hope of helping others. And today Lucy spoke on behalf of her husband Steve and their two teenage children. This whānau of four now live in a medium-sized city in Aotearoa. The population is less than 100,000, but Lucy in particular, she didn't start out there. It's a bit of a story. It was a bit of a bumpy road for her family to get here, she said, and she was quite right. Now, before I really get into the meat and potatoes of the episode, I've just got a quick word from Pocketsmith, today's, and pretty much every episode's fabulous sponsor. Thanks, team. I do like a bargain, so imagine my delight when my favourite local restaurant said that they were looking for a mystery shopper, all expenses paid. My family is less interested in budgeting and bargain hunting, but they do love eating. And all we had to do was order, eat and pay the $125 bill. I categorised this as an expense in my dining out budget within Pocketsmith. Once I gave the restaurant my glowing feedback, they reimbursed the cost of our delicious dinner, and I categorised this as income in my dining out budget within Pocketsmith, meaning that one cancelled out the other. Given that we eat out about twice a month, I managed to halve this monthly expense, freeing up money to use elsewhere. If you want to supercharge your finances with Pocketsmith, they've got a deal for you. Happy Saver listeners get a whopping 50% off your first two months of Pocketsmith's premium plan. To get your deal, go to pocketsmith.com forward slash the happy saver. That's pocketsmith.com forward slash the happy saver. Lucy's mum was born in England in the early 1940s, which was, of course, during the Second World War, and then her family emigrated to South Africa. And her dad was born in India just a year later because his father and grandfather were in the British Army stationed in India. But when India started to become independent, her father's family left and went to Rhodesia, which is now Zimbabwe. When he finished school, he went off to radio college in the UK, and he got qualified to work in the Merchant Navy on cargo ships, and he went all around the world doing radio work. When her parents met, they lived predominantly in Cape Town, South Africa, and he chose to give up life at sea and settle on land and get a job so that when Lucy was born in 1977, he could be around as a father and a husband. The downside was that he left what was a very well-paid job to get a poorly paid job fixing TVs for customers, while her mum was a stay-at-home parent. It was quite a step back for him, and he later said to Lucy that his biggest financial regret was not retraining as an electrician, 
because he could have used the skills he had and earned tons more money. Lucy began school right at a time when the political situation in South Africa was just awful, she said. She said it was just horrific at that time. Apartheid was a terrible situation and there was huge and dangerous unrest and upheaval all around them. Her memories of that time are of being fearful all of the time and being stuck in the middle of it all felt very unfair. Her family were white, but they weren't wealthy white people and they didn't agree with the political system, which was in itself a dangerous position to take. Her dad's job was also quite unsafe because his work took him on the road quite a lot and there were a lot of carjackings and killings that would occur. Her primary school had a bomb threat and just horrible, horrible things were constantly occurring all around them. Mortgage interest rates were up over 20% and they were just drowning in all parts of their lives basically. And it reached a point where her parents could no longer see a future in South Africa. Understandably, they just wanted to remove themselves from the situation and they just wanted to get out, but they didn't have much money to do it. Several of her dad's friends and ex-colleagues had emigrated to Canada, Australia and the UK because they were all British colonies and they suggested Lucy's family do the same. So Lucy's parents started applying to those countries to see if they could move their family of three there. But they were turned down, mainly because of their age. She recalls that perhaps you had to be under the age of 35, or if you were over 35, which her parents were, you had to have a lot of cash to be accepted, but for her parents, they couldn't afford it. Their living situation was getting a bit more dire, and they cast their net wider, applying to New Zealand, who said yes. A visa was granted, and they had to present themselves at the New Zealand Embassy in London to collect it on their way here. So they packed up everything, they said goodbye to everyone they loved, they put the cat down and they left. Hold up, did they actually put the cat down? Well, yes, it was a horrible, awful thing to do, she said. But when the country you were in was going through such massive turmoil that you are more or less fleeing for your life or rehoming your cat or spending money that you just don't have to bring it with you, well, it simply doesn't make it onto your to-do list. That is the cold reality of it. They arrived in the UK in around 1984, in the middle of winter, for what was supposed to be two weeks, enjoying Christmas and then seeing the New Year in, and visiting and farewelling family there before they moved to Aotearoa. Now, it was both a culture shock and an amazing adventure for eight-year-old Lucy. For a start, she had never felt cold before and had to wear layers of winter clothing, so that was a new experience. Throughout all of this, she was involved in all of the adult conversations going on about their move. Her parents were very open about the big decisions and the money stuff, and she was kind of just part of the discussion, and she feels quite fortunate that there wasn't anything being hidden about the reality of their situation. In January of 1985, they turned up at the New Zealand Embassy to collect their visa, only to be informed that somebody in Wellington had stuffed up and there was no visa, which meant they couldn't leave the country to come to New Zealand. So they were stranded, which was horrific because her parents, who had very little to begin with, had carefully managed their money to pay for the plane fares, but there was little to no money left. Now luckily, due to their ancestry, they were all British citizens, so they were allowed to stay in the country under a special visa, she said, but they had no money and no income. They were fortunate to have a family member who had a holiday flat that they used in the summertime, and they lent that to them so at least they had a roof over their heads. But her dad had to go on the meagre unemployment benefit and just basically had to survive and wait until the visa came through. 
Lucy couldn't attend school during that time because they were always poised to leave the country, thinking that they would have their visa granted any day now. And there was no point buying the uniform and starting school when they might be leaving next week. And although they didn't miss a meal during that time, it was dire enough that they certainly didn't eat great either due to being so poor. But nothing came easily in mid-80s Britain. Maggie Thatcher was the Prime Minister and unemployment was rife. And I get the feeling that they were not the only ones trying to leave England. They kept getting told a time frame and a date for their visa, which came and went. There was no internet, of course, it was letters going back and forth, so they needed to stay in the same place to receive those. They were absolutely skint, and they couldn't even afford the phone calls to check up on their status, let alone an in-person visit to the London office to try and speed things up. Now, as an eight-year-old, she remembers that time as being grim, very, very grim. And if it was grim for her, she thinks that it really would have been horrific for her parents, because they were simply stuck between a rock and a hard place. As an adult looking back, and now as a parent herself, she said it just played out like your worst nightmare, feeling stateless and only being a few rungs up from a refugee. The fact that she recalled the experience so vividly tells me that it really was an intense process. Lucy remembers looking at her own children when they were eight or nine, and it made her reflect back to when she was that age, when she couldn't go to school, and it helped her join the dots of her childhood and realised that experience actually had a huge impact on her perception of money and the way people view you if you're poor. From a financial point of view, they went from being financially average in South Africa to actively being poor in England. And this was particularly noticeable with the class system in England, as people were very judgmental and dismissive, and she said it was almost like they were invisible and not as worthwhile as a person. Also, it was a huge contrast to live in South Africa, where she was looked upon with hatred because of her skin colour, and just because she was able to attend school and was comparatively rich compared to many, and then you go to England and you're considered the dregs of society because your father is standing in a doll queue just to feed his family. But confusingly for someone so young, they were the same people, and they were just viewed so totally differently depending on which country they were standing in. Now, it took almost a year for them to eventually get a visa to enter New Zealand, and when it came through, she recalled the scary process of having to go to London and be formally interviewed in order to be accepted into this country. She remembers just being petrified that she wouldn't shake the person's hand right, be polite enough, or do some other small thing wrong that would prevent them from getting into the country. At the age of nine, going on ten, it felt like there was just so much riding on her every action which is such a huge amount of pressure on someone so young. Because all of their money was gone, any savings they had for their future in New Zealand was gone. They had to borrow money from her uncle for the aeroplane ticket here. And in a final blow, when they did eventually arrive, they found that most of their furniture and possessions had been lost or stolen along the way. So for quite some time, they slept in borrowed sleeping bags on the floor. Oh my gosh, can you even imagine what that must have been like? Her story is the reason I have such compassion and respect for those who, despite the odds being stacked against them, decide to make New Zealand their home. Now, I was interested to learn where they settled when they got here. Well, while in South Africa, her parents had read New Zealand newspapers so that they could get a feel for where they would like to move and whether or not they should move to a city or a smaller town. He had had a few job offers in Christchurch, but they decided not to go there having read that it had gang problems, instead deciding to settle into a really small town with fewer than 10,000 people. 
Now, I've got a number of South African friends, and I can tell you that New Zealand gang problems, especially back in the 1980s, pale in comparison to the violence they were enduring in South Africa, but they didn't realise that. So they avoided the city that sounded like it was being run by gangs, and small-town New Zealand it was. But they had absolutely no concept of what a genuine small town was like until they arrived. It was so tiny, she said. Her parents rented a home and they muddled along and did the best they could to live within their means. But it wasn't easy and they were never wealthy. But at least they got here and were safe and had the opportunity for a far better future. After a time, they all moved to a bigger town and that is where Lucy still lives today. Current population, about 85,000. Lucy started primary school, finding herself ahead in some subjects and behind in others, and began to get used to this new country that she found herself in. She lost her accent pretty quickly, which stopped her being teased about it, and her family found that while on the outside they looked the same as many, they didn't feel the same at all. Because New Zealanders didn't really comprehend the reality of what living in South Africa was like, only what they saw in the 6 o'clock news, they immediately jumped to the wrong conclusion that because they were white and from South Africa and because they left, well, that they were racist, which could not have been further from the truth. So it was hard settling in, that was for sure. Eventually, her parents did find happiness and got established. It was easier for her dad because he was out and about working, but her mum was at home with no car because they couldn't afford it and therefore met far fewer people. Her dad was able to use his work van at the weekends to get groceries and whatnot, but there were certainly no holidays and trips being taken. Instead, there were the simple pleasures of picnics and walks, which were nice, but it was a no-frills existence. They would have loved to have owned their own home, but due to their low income, they never did. But they did have stable and good quality rentals, with good landlords, meaning no worries of having to pay rates or do maintenance. Money was widely talked about, or lack thereof, And always the fact that her dad had given up a well-paid job at sea, being away about eight months at a time, to be around as a dad. They also always talked about value and the fact that you do give up some things, but you say yes to others. And she also learned through experience that life changes and it's not necessarily your fault when things go wrong. So when people look at others who are poor and think, ah, they just made bad decisions, she learned it's often not the case. It's more sort of a compounding pile of things that just naturally occurs sometimes, and it's hard to stop it. Lucy worked really, really hard at school and was bright, and she did really well. She met Steve in her final year at high school, and they have been together ever since. Also during her final year, and when she was aged 18, her parents went through a pretty awful breakup, which resulted in Lucy having to move out of home and go onto an independent youth benefit in order to pay to live. Now, this was pretty dire. She had always had part-time jobs up until then and had created a safety net of money that was then used for her day-to-day survival, pretty much, given she was now out on her own. She had two accommodation options, moving into a student hostel or in with Steve and his family. Although she didn't really want to, she moved in with Steve, figuring at least it was a domestic setting in a stable home. She paid them board and kept working part-time and going to school And in a move she was pretty chuffed with herself for, she saved up and bought herself a $1,000 scooter to get around. Her part-time work and that small independent youth benefit funded everything that she wanted and needed to do. So this was quite a shock for me to hear that her parents' marriage ended, considering all her parents had done to stay together and get to a safer place for the good of their family, to then hear that Lucy was out on her own 
at such a young age was a bit of a sad surprise really. She said that they didn't know it at the time, but her mum actually had a breakdown and I'd imagine it was brought on from all the years of trauma that she'd gone through. For Lucy, home life had become confusing, traumatic and horrible and Lucy said that it was basically a social worker who said to her, look, even though you're still completing your final year at high school, you are 18 years old, it's probably just best that you go. Her father had spent the majority of his childhood at boarding school, so he was just, oh well, you're an adult, off you go, you'll be all right. So for all intents and purposes, she was booted out, and it was just an awful phase of life to go through, she said. But after a time, everything settled down, and somewhat remarkably, she actually has a lovely relationship with both of her parents now. But being thrown into a new family, Steve's family, opened up her eyes to a whole other dynamic and way of viewing money. So while her family had very little money and were open, honest and transparent, his family were relatively wealthy, but not open to talk about money. And there were often weird undercurrents leading to him not having a very good money experience growing up. To me, it points to the strength of Lucy to switch and move from one situation to the next and be able to step back and think, how am I going to cope with the situation? What am I going to do here? And then to move forward. And around 1995, as soon as they finished school, Steve and Lucy immediately rented a cheap flat while they tried to work out what they wanted to do next. They didn't really know what to do at that point, except that they knew they wanted to keep the momentum of study going. So in 1996, they picked polytech courses in their town that they thought would be vaguely useful. She wanted to go to university, but the safety net of her family had been pulled out from under her. So staying in her hometown, even though her parents were split, was a safer choice. But within a few short months, they realised that their course choices of sporting and tourism were wrong and were unlikely to lead them to work that they would enjoy. But they didn't want to waste the time they'd put in, nor the student loans that they'd signed up for, so they both fully completed their courses. Next, and after a pretty exhaustive career choice search, they found a university campus where they could both study what interested them. They meticulously researched not just the safe option, but the best option for them both this time. And they found a campus about three hours away from their families. At the age of 19 in 1997, they got married and they headed off to study, rented a flat and jumped into a three-year degree. She did a bachelor degree and then two postgraduate qualifications, all in the areas of health and history. Now, I'm staying pretty vague about her qualifications to protect her privacy, but it was an eclectic mix of topics that greatly interested her, and they've actually proven to be a fantastic mix that have gained her good jobs over the years, she said. Now, Steve completed a bachelor's degree and then a master's, and those qualifications also gave him a great start in his career. I asked her if they were able to work while they studied. Well, they did initially, but they only had one car, and they had purchased this with finance. They were each trying to work part-time jobs, both of which needed a car. So they were paying the car off, she was still learning to drive, and at one point Steve was teaching her to drive as part of his pizza delivery route. So this multitasking was not an ideal situation, she said. And I asked for more information about the car on hire purchase. Given their location, they needed a car, and given their ages and lack of income, they didn't have the cash to pay for it. Well, they wanted to buy something that wasn't going to break down, so it wasn't a hunk of junk, but it was cheap, and she said that they were pretty meticulous about making the payments, meaning it got paid off perfectly, and actually pointed to the fact that they were, as a couple, very good at budgeting out of necessity. 
Because they were married, they got the couple student allowance provided by the government, which was relatively okay to live on, and this meant that they could afford to rent a house that they didn't have to share with anybody else. They got to live by themselves as a married couple, and it was just really lovely, she said. And it meant that she could get her equilibrium back after all the awfulness with her family. And they could just start their lives together with a bit of breathing space. It was kind of them against the world, and it was a lovely time of their lives, and she was just so, so grateful to be at university. It was a massive milestone to actually even get there. With no other access to money, but a strong desire to study, they both took out student loans to cover their fees, and in case you think I'm vehemently opposed to student loans, I'm not. Interest-free student loans were designed for exactly this situation, so that everyone has access to a tertiary education. Lucy said she was just so grateful that she could access it because she knew she would never have had this opportunity in South Africa or England where education was out of their price range. The fact that low-cost student loans were available for people to use was just amazing and it was always her intention to work and pay it back and they had no plans to do what most people were doing which was just skipping off overseas, taking the education their country had given them with no plans to ever repay it. Now, of course, student loans used to incur interest, and she remembers the day when that was removed, and they were both so thankful for that as it sped up their payoff. Now, all up between Polytech, university, and some study from home, they each did five years, at the end of which, still in their early 20s, they moved back to their hometown and began working full-time. They were still pretty young, she remembers, and it was daunting to have the qualifications, but not the experience due to their youth, and being thrown into some pretty intense areas of work feeling out of depth and muddling along until she could find her niche. Both of their jobs initially saw them working with at-risk youth and members of the community, who for a myriad of reasons needed extensive support, and because they were so young themselves, it just took the gloss off life real quick. Given they were now both earning incomes, I asked how they handled their money during that time. She said they were very good at handling tiny amounts of money, because things were a lot more black and white when you were paying the bills for rent, power, phone, food, and car stuff. If they were lucky, there might be a smidge left over for a treat. It's only as they got older and their income increased that things got more complex, as they tend to do. They both started out working, each earning about $32,000, which is a new graduate salary, so a combined family income of $64,000. So they'd gone from student allowance to this much higher income, so it felt like mega bucks. And for the first six weeks, all they could think to do was save and save. And they also started to dream a little about what they could do. They could travel overseas to visit her family, for example. But she didn't want history repeating with her getting stuck over there with no money. They asked themselves if they wanted to buy a house. And because they were already, even at this young age, sick of renting, and they were pretty keen to feel settled, they thought they would just take a look at what houses were selling for. So, you know, they would know how much deposit to save. Fatal mistake, they got all excited, of course. Houses were not too badly priced back in 2001, and pretty quickly they managed to buy a house in an area they liked, with schools close by for future tamariki. It was one that needed work, but they could buy it for $89,000. They put all their money down, but given they'd only been saving for a month or two, it was not really that much, but both of their parents actually managed to chip in with a few thousand dollars too. And of course, once it was theirs, as is the Kiwi way, they had to do extensive repairs. It had been a rental property and was in pretty bad shape, hence the cheap price. 
but they were the happiest people ever and it instantly made them feel settled and being young and full of energy, they were excited to renovate it. With little planning, they embarked on six months of craziness. She said they sorted out a new roof, an electrical upgrade, plumbing and cosmetic changes, but the gamble on a fixer-upper paid off and they remain in the same house 22 years later. They have been tempted to move over the years and upsize like they see others do, but they love the area, they love the house, and financially speaking, staying put makes sense. If they moved, they would pay a lot more and take on a bigger mortgage for the change. Over the years, their careers have changed, and she has worked a variety of PAYE and contracting roles. They made the decision to stay put in their town, which did limit their job opportunities, but she managed to find a part-time job that would also allow her to study at the same time and he found full-time work. I asked Lucy, given the price they paid was so cheap, how come they still have a mortgage? Although they did a lot of the physical work themselves, which saved costs, they have refinanced a number of times over the years. Now, refinancing is just a fancy way of saying you are borrowing more money. If the money is spent on the house, then the value of the house increases, and in turn, it's pretty likely that the bank will lend you even more money. They took on extra debt to pay for the things I've already mentioned, like the kitchen, the bathroom, and the roof, and they also added a garage and all that kind of stuff. But Lucy said that every time they borrowed a dollar, they made it stretch twice as far by being smart about their choices and doing as much themselves as they could. They worked their tails off. It was hours and hours of work, and they are so proud of the work they completed and the practical skills they've learned along the way. When it comes to handling their putia, while still at high school, they merged their bank accounts. She recalls her friends being horrified and she remembers feeling a little bit vulnerable because she had saved some money whereas he had not and was thinking, there is an element of trust here but still, they did it. And since that time, he has leaned more to the spendy side, she more to the saver side. So right from the start, she said that she has naturally become more of the captain of their financial ship as they share the money. And although there have been a few difficult patches over the years, it has worked. The rougher patches were when she'd had their two children and she had returned to work in a demanding role under the impression that you can have kids and work full-time and it will be worth it for the money. She basically was making enough to cover the daycare, except the kids were miserable, she was miserable and knackered, and she came to the conclusion that it turns out, no, it actually isn't worth it. The money she was making was pointless because it was coming in one door and straight out the other to pay someone else to raise their children. So to share the load, she tried to hand the finances over to Steve because she saw it as something that was black and white, something he could do while she managed the organisation of childcare, the meal planning, working and what have you. But it didn't go great and it caused a bit of tension between the two of them. So the issue was never who earned or spent what, it was more the management of the money in total that was hard work. It didn't help that at that time, they also tried to change their mortgage to New Zealand home loans and learning that whole structure was so unusual and something that they weren't familiar with that she still doesn't know if they made any headway during that time. It just added a layer of complexity that neither of them needed at that point in time. So sharing their money was not the problem. The organisation of the roles they both had was the problem, but they worked through that. Now they know that she excels at doing the detail, setting the structure of things, and if she notices that the insurance bill has shot up, well, he's quite happy to go through it all, send emails or make phone calls and negotiate to bring it down to a more manageable amount. And then she sorts the payment of the bill itself. So say they need to buy a different car, 
She'll look at the money and say, right, we've got X amount of money to spend. And then he'll do all the research and find the perfect car within those parameters. So he hates finding those parameters and she hates the research. So they really have found the perfect solution and they each get to play to their strengths. So coming back to changing their mortgage structure, I asked why they needed to change it. They started out by using TSB, which was great, but at that time they found it to be a very traditional sort of bank and not overly flexible, and they had heard about interest offsetting and different ways of tweaking things so that you could make faster gains on your mortgage, and their bank offered none of that. Somebody had mentioned New Zealand home loans and they met with them, heard their spiel and decided to go down that track. They were right in some things. If you pay your insurance annually, you might get a discount. But what they didn't think to do was, of course, save up all year long so that they had the full amount to pay annually. It was little things like that that they weren't experienced enough to do. And I think that at that time, they wouldn't have been able to have those separate bank accounts anyway. It might be different now. I'm just not sure. And she said, because New Zealand home loans basically have you put all of your money in one big lump, it's not easy to budget. At that time, her income was really flexible and she was earning totally different amounts month to month, so it wasn't easy to keep track of. Personally, I think that a revolving credit type structure for a mortgage works best if you already live well below your means and have a decent income. You don't have to count your pennies as such. You are just hell-bent on spending as few pennies as possible, meaning that over time, your debt level drops faster. So, They didn't stay with them very long and they went to Westpac mainly because they offered interest offset accounts and multiple sub-accounts, which is what she now likes to use because all their money can be separated into a different sinking fund and they can now save up and pay cash for stuff. And since making that switch, it has been working out really well. So coming back around to that mortgage, today they still owe $119,000. So how come they started 22 years ago owing 89 grand and today they owe more. Well, as I mentioned, they have extended their mortgage many times over the years, tapping into that equity that's built up so that they can pay for things. There were the essential and then the non-essential renovations, like putting the fence around the property, which meant that they could get a dog. And there were the absolute must, she said, like the roof, the electrics, the plumbing and the kitchen. So she said they did refinance an awful lot. But what was the alternative to borrowing again and again? Well, of course, it is saving up and paying cash for each phase of a renovation while at the same time paying down your mortgage. But doing this means it takes longer to get your repairs done. Now, this reminded me of when John and I had a mortgage and a house that we wanted to do up. Because our mortgage had a floating component to it, which is a portion that we could redraw on, we did use it to do DIY and buy cars again and again. It was so easy to do. The bank, in effect, encouraged us to do it. Why? Because banks make money by lending us money, of course. And no part of us ever really ran the math on how much longer we would stay in debt by doing so. We were just lucky that our incomes were high enough, and it was before we had a child, that we kind of out-earned our lack of financial knowledge, and over the course of a couple of years eventually realised that we could save up and cash flow work. And we ended up both getting out of $120,000 of mortgage debt and renovating the house, buying cars, taking holidays to the tune of almost the same amount of money. So cash flowing life can certainly be done. Lucy's situation, she said, was a little different. Although even now they think they should or could have been mortgage free by now, 
continuing to redraw on their lending instead of saving up has meant that she was able to work part-time and be with the kids when they eventually came along. Plus, Steve suffered a pretty serious injury in his 20s and he had to take quite a lot of time off work. He ended up on ACC, which pays 80% of your income. Plus, Lucy did another year of study pre-kids where she was only working part-time. So they never smashed the mortgage in their 20s because life happened. And I think that once you slow up the momentum of paying off debt and the bank is perfectly okay with you borrowing their money, well, it's not surprising that they relaxed their intensity. So when was the last time they added to their mortgage or are they still doing it? It was about seven years ago. Because their kids were soon to become teenagers, they were looking at either moving to something bigger or differently shaped or making a final lot of tweaks to their existing house. Renovation was literally half the cost of moving, so that's what they did. But they are done, and apart from maintaining what they have, they have vowed to each other to never touch the house again. They found that with the last round of renos, they had no idea that costs had skyrocketed so much, and those costs bit them in the bum, she said. So never again, and these days they are making extra payments as much as they can. And at the same time as paying down that debt, they have both been investing into their KiwiSavers. Lucy took a pause in her KiwiSaver contributions when the kids were born and her income stopped, but as soon as she was back earning, it would kick back into action again. And this pause in contributing when young is definitely part of the reason why women tend to have less in their KiwiSavers than men. So if you have a spouse that you have combined finances with, using that family income to continue to contribute to the non-working spouse while income stops is absolutely worth doing. And I'll tell you a little more about their KiwiSavers in a moment. As far as money in the bank, there are a number of sinking funds where they are saving up for things that they know are going to happen, and I'll also get to them shortly. So they have just finished saving up the full $8,500 for braces for their younger child's teeth, and this is after cash flowing $7,500 for their older child a few years prior. Now that they have hit their savings goal, they've redirected the money they were putting into the saving account each week towards their floating mortgage. She much prefers to have her money divided up so that she can clearly see the purpose of each amount, and she said that for them it just works beautifully. It is always a bit fluid, and she moves things around a little bit, but 90% of the time it works just fine. They also have $10,000 put aside in an emergency fund, and this is to absolutely not be touched unless there is a full-on situation to be dealt with. Personally, I like this kind of structure, particularly when you have a goal to get out of debt or to invest, because you can work out exactly how much money you need for daily living and short-term goals, which means that you know when you have a surplus that you can then send to debt or to investing. They had a $40,000 floating component to their mortgage, which they've since paid down and reduced to $19,000. They initially didn't want a credit card at all, but it was while booking a trip in Aotearoa that they kept coming up against the expectation that they should have won as each accommodation provider asked for their credit card details and seemed a little incredulous that they didn't have one, asking, but how do you pay the bills then? Also, in the back of her mind was the fact that if Lucy needed to visit Fano overseas in a hurry, well, she felt a credit card could be a little bit of a safety net acting as an emergency fund. I'd argue it shouldn't be used for that purpose as she already has an emergency fund. They now use their credit card to pay for as many bills and expenses as they can because they are earning some reward points from their bank for doing so that they can then buy store vouchers with. 
They use these to buy things that are needed for their kids, like a winter jacket or running shoes or a new bike helmet. And she makes sure that the credit card balance is paid off in full every month. So they never incur interest and they get these rewards. Just a note on that though, it's really easy to listen, particularly to American personal finance podcasts, where they earn some big rewards and cashbacks on their credit cards. And you might want to do the same here. Our credit card rewards programs are pathetic by comparison. So a word of warning is to make sure that once you pay the annual fee, you are actually making money off it. Johnny and I used to have the same credit card actually as Lucy and found that because our spending was low and the rewards they offered kept getting cut and there was an annual charge to pay, well, it was just not worth keeping it. So we switched to using a debit card about five years ago and this really streamlined our budgeting as well. And we have never had an issue traveling internationally using a debit card either. Lucy and Ofano use their credit cards extremely carefully. In fact, her family call her Iron Fist because she monitors it so closely by not spending $1 more than they need to on it. For example, they meal plan and shop accordingly. So it means that everything's in the pantry when you need it. You can't just go get a pizza on the credit card because you can't be bothered cooking. She doesn't advocate using credit cards, but it works for them because they manage it so well. Plus, they openly talk to the kids about the way they use the credit card and they use it to their advantage. And her kids can see that happening when they get vouchers to go and buy the stuff that they need. Now, I know that people listening are always intrigued by the sinking funds of others. So I asked Lucy for a list of specific bank accounts that she contributes to. And each to their own. It's a long list. They are literally all different bank accounts, each with a different suffix. And they do not pay additional fees for having so many accounts. All of these are spread across two banks and the ones that are with the bank they have their mortgage with are offset against the mortgage, meaning that they don't earn any interest, but they instead offset a small amount of interest that they're due to pay. So righto, brace yourselves, here it goes. There is a high school one that's for uniforms, computers, school trips and education related stuff. They have a phones and internet one, household power, pharmacy type of account, which is used for health related expenses clothing and shoes because she's got teenagers so there's probably lots of shoes, home maintenance, petrol, Christmas, birthdays, sports such as after school activities or bike and equipment repair. There's the credit card account where money is automatically set aside to pay off the credit card, her fund money, his fund money, a specific account for hair. Now I have no idea what Lucy looks like but the fact that she has a bank account specifically for her hair tells me that she must look fabulous. The pets get an account too, of course, car expenses and repairs, the braces account for that second child, what she calls a shit happens account, what others might call an emergency fund, plus a couple of accounts for a small side hustle that she has, and one of those is for the daily banking of the hustle and the other is to set aside tax. Now some of you might be nodding along with this long list thinking this amount of organisation sounds enlightened, others might think it's a waste of time. I'm the former. But the point of personal finance is that it's completely irrelevant what you think, because if it makes sense to the family it is set up for and it helps them have understanding, control and peace over their money, then it is the perfect system. So for Lucy, her banking setup is perfection and I admire her organisation skills a lot. So what are their incomes these days was my next question. When their two children were still small, she moved away from doing contract work with its variable pay and variable hours because she wanted something stable. Right when her oldest was beginning primary school, she was lucky enough to get part-time work at a high school working with international students. 
kind of being their Kiwi mum and helping them with any and all things that they needed. And even though it was a drop in pay, she absolutely loved it. And it meant that she was home with her kids for the entire holidays. The school wanted to transition the role to full time, but once she crunched the numbers, given that she would have to pay for after school and holiday care for their two children, it would have meant that she was losing money. So she turned it down and she moved instead to another school, working in a relatively comprehensive admin role instead. And she stayed in this role right up until her oldest child began high school and her youngest was moving to an intermediate school. So her kids had a really stable journey through their early years of school with their mum at home for all of the holidays and after school, which was like a dream come true, she said. Her current role has her using her qualifications a little more, so has had a bump in pay and is working part-time as a clinical assistant at a healthcare provider. And during these years, her husband had a stable career working in local government. He is full-time and she is working 25 to 30 hours a week, but since COVID came along, he has flexibility over where he works. So between the two of them, it means that there is always someone home in the morning to get their kids off to school and someone there when they return home. So it's pretty awesome, she said. She also detailed that he was actually able to take a step back in his work, giving up some stressful responsibilities and some income, but it meant that he was happier, which means that the whole family is happier. These lower debt levels allow you to have more choice in how you work. And I really like how they are able to find work that they both enjoy that works for their whole family, even if it means working less or giving up a bit of income. And it sounds like they have a very balanced lifestyle, living well within their means, something that many Kiwis find hard to do. So back to their income, their combined family income is currently $138,000 before tax, with Steve earning $104,000, Lucy earning $34,000. She said that they feel wealthy on this income and are doing really well. So next, we talked a little about investing. Both adults are in KiwiSaver. Each is contributing 4%, as is their employer. Steve is with ANZ Super Easy in a balanced fund, which is a provider used by those in local government. He has a balance of about $60,000. Plus, he apparently has another $13,000 in an AMP fund that he joined with the previous employer. Frustratingly, this money can't be merged with his current provider, nor adjusted until he turns 65. Hers is in a growth fund with Fisher Funds with a balance of about $30,000. Lucy's is much lower due to part-time work and time out of the workforce. They also signed up each child to KiwiSaver when they were born. It was at the time when the government contributed $1,000 when you started, and they used Fisher Funds to invest a varying amount into their accounts monthly. It has always varied due to the other things that they have going on, but at the very minimum, it's been $20 a month contributed to each child's fund. And even the small contribution will compound and grow over time. They are prioritising setting aside enough money into their various sinking funds and making extra mortgage payments over KiwiSaver at this stage because their priority is to get rid of their mortgage within 10 years and they are on the right trajectory for that to happen. But they don't have hard and fast rules because situations and plans can change. Take the major injury Steve had in his 20s and the COVID pandemic, for example. So. They just do the best they can, making hay while the sun shines, but also being prepared financially for if it doesn't. Now both in their mid-40s with two teenage kids, they just want to enjoy the fact that they are comfortable and can raise their tamariki the way they want. And how are they preparing their kids to have a good financial life, one that lets them achieve their goals in life? Their children are always made a part of their general family money chats, 
much like Lucy was a part of money conversations growing up. However, Lucy is very aware of money talk not being fear-based with her own children. They hear Lucy talk about what they are saving for as a family, what something has cost, and what account that money has come from. If their bike needs a new part, they talk about how the pocket money they receive can be used to save up and pay for it. There was always a discussion about how things come about. Items they want don't just magically fall from the sky. Lucy notes that her children, who are 14 and 12, spend their $10 a week pocket money a little differently to each other. One will tend to spend on small, cheaper things and loves to research purchases, and the other spends on bigger things and sometimes has angst over spending that money. But that might just come down to where they're both at in life as well, with one of them into bikes, which are more expensive, and the other not having yet developed that type of hobby. Time will tell, but Lucy is watching and guiding them so that their interactions with money are positive, telling them that they each have earned the right to spend money, that they have set aside for that purpose, so they should enjoy it. Currently, their oldest child has a bank account and the younger is still using piggy banks for their spending and saving, but when the time feels right, they will move to a bank account too. With the oldest being 14 now, the conversation is also beginning to be had about part-time work, so if they can get their kids understanding what to do with their pocket money now, When they start to earn a little more money, they also will naturally begin to understand what to do with their income too. Think back to when Lucy and Steve moved from a small student allowance to full-time working incomes and how they struggled to adjust. Well, she wants to make the money habits of her kids so ingrained that this transition will be far easier for them. Lucy definitely makes a point that money is a tool to buy the life you want. It's not something to be constantly in fear of or to worry about not having enough of. She's just trying to teach them that having a plan for money gives you options. And by sharing what they are doing as adults, the kids get to see how they plan and spend money. As a family, they like having nice stuff, but their kids see that they are happy to buy second hand, they will always save up for the item, or use credit card points to get it effectively for free. Naturally, their kids do the same now, happily going for a rummage through the recycling clothing store Save Mart to buy label clothing within their price range. So they still get the good stuff, they don't go without, they can still have the teenage stuff they want, but at a fraction of the price and within their income means. Her kids already know about how a scheme such as Afterpay works, and how if they manage their money well, they won't even need to use it because they are learning the opposite of Afterpay, which is save up first and then buy the item, instead of the other way round. Now, I much prefer hearing this kind of kōrero in the home instead of hearing of adults who say they are actively teaching their kids how to handle debt. That's a parenting fail in my view. So how do they do this? Well, they lend their kids money for the things they want to buy instead of teaching them to save up and then go shopping. They start off small, a Lego set for example, and the kid has to pay them back over time. And as the wants of the child increases, so does the price tag. A lot of parents lend their children money for their first car, then set payment terms for paying it back. Now the trouble with this is that pretty soon after, the car breaks down. The kids cease paying their parents back to pay for the repairs instead. So in effect, they just have a debt with mum and dad that they're struggling to pay off. They now have a debt with their mechanic that they are also struggling to pay off. If they don't have the cash, which they often don't, having never been taught to save, they will add it to their parents' debt or they'll use a lender outside of the home. That's no way to teach your kids, and in my view, it's why none of us should be surprised people have taken to consumer debt the way they have. 
Lucy and Steve also want to show that money is fun so their kids see their parents saving up for a holiday, then they all take the holiday and it's great. They don't have to witness hangover stress from it because it's all paid for up front. There is no lingering credit card debt and watching their parents having to pick up extra hours at work to pay for it or worry and argue over money. She said that they want their kids to know that they can have anything that they want to have, but they can't have everything. It's about setting priorities. And I asked, are her children starting to notice that the way their family talks about Putia and the way they manage their money is a little different to their friends? Well, yes, she said, they are definitely aware of the kids at their school that don't want for anything and that they just take the things that they have for granted, feeling entitled to a life of awesome in many ways. Already at this young age, they are aware that this sort of attitude of entitlement is possibly not healthy. It's quite extreme in many ways. And at the other end of the spectrum, they notice other kids who have very little. They are definitely noticing the spectrum of amounts of money that others have and the way that others use money. And this in turn leads to conversations about also not judging a book by its cover and that overt displays of wealth in adults, such as high-end cars, are not necessarily an indication of the driver being rich. And at the other end of the spectrum, those who appear in the eyes of kids to be poor because of the car they drive, well, they may actually be wealthier than the fancy car driver because they probably own their car and don't make payments. Lucy has been using sharesies to invest just a very small amount of money each week as a form of education for herself, while they are using the bulk of their income getting after their mortgage. And she has very recently set both of her tamariki with their own sharesies accounts. The intention is that when they get proper part-time jobs, she will be teaching them to split their income up so that they can invest some here, most likely into a single broad-based ETF fund. And with this income, she will also be instructing them to contribute a higher amount, probably 8%, she said, into their KiwiSaver, plus also have sinking funds of their own in their own bank accounts. I asked why she would set KiwiSaver at 8%, because they won't have any outgoings in terms of life just yet. She wants them to have the maximum benefit of compound interest now while they are young, and she doesn't want them draining the account for a home loan either. She wants them to instead use their investments to build up a house deposit. Her oldest child is already becoming aware of these multiple places to store his money, a bank account for spending and one for saving up for things he knows he will need to buy in the short term. KiwiSaver is for his retirement, a tentative start with share market investing. And he's already looking at the tiny amount of pocket money that he makes each week and has declared that he pretty much won't ever be able to afford to move out of home because how can he possibly fill up all these buckets his parents have set up for him? And he's jokingly said to his mum that at this rate he's going to spend the rest of his life squatting in his bedroom. But Lucy's son, if you are listening to this, which I suspect your mother might make you do, um, I can assure you that the money that starts to come your way only starts to grow from here on in particularly once you start to pick up part-time work as many teenagers tend to do. And if you can set up your money systems while you earn stuff all, you will easily adapt them to an increased income. And you will always have some money to spend and enjoy now, plus some for future you too. So you will get to move out of home one day, I promise. Now my daughter is just a bit older than Lucy's oldest and has been investing 50% of every dollar she has been earning over the last few years. Now I checked her balance as I wrote this up. She has $6,000 invested in the SmartShares US 500 fund via Sharesies. $900 of that balance, almost an 18% return, is from capital gains and dividends. All the money she has contributed has come from odd jobs, 
pocket money, birthday money, and some short stints of summer work, and now a small part-time job. In addition to this $6,000, at the same time, she also has KiwiSaver, plus a couple of bank accounts for managing her spending money. From small acorns, mighty oaks grow. You just have to give them time. Lucy is hoping she is setting her children up with the money education they need to manage and navigate both good times and bad, and learn to be more relaxed with money than she has been. Her money lessons when she grew up came from fighting a lot of financial fires and growing up with not much. But Lucy wants her children to be able to enjoy their money and have fun with it, not go crazy with it or overdo the savings side. Basically, she wants them to find their own balance, knowing when to loosen the reins and spend more, but knowing when to pull back. If you want to teach your kids about money, like Lucy and Steve have done, I would encourage you to just have a lot of small conversations often. And Lucy said that it's actually really fun watching her two tamariki embark on their own journey with money. And make no mistake, we parents are learning alongside our kids and in a way addressing the information we missed out on growing up, resetting any biases we have internalised along the way. She said that this has definitely been the case for her and Steve. Earlier I went into quite some detail about how she grew up, but she did also briefly mention how Steve grew up. The money examples shown in his home were not conducive to him handling money well. There was more of a get them before they get you attitude to money and it was all a bit rough and a bit dodgy and it sounded like you had to fight for what you got, whether that be in the home or outside of it. So to both take a step back and help their kids build a far stronger financial foundation has been a really positive experience for them as adults, she said. Now they realise as a couple that if they are sorted financially, they will be in a position to help their kids, but it doesn't mean that they will hand them everything. Instead, they're teaching them the knowledge they will need to help themselves, because at the end of the day, they need to go out and live their own lives. They are responsible for it, and they can finance it themselves. With their only debt being a mortgage that still has years to run, Lucy and Steve rightly think that it's far better that they put their money there than in savings accounts for their kids. They are also having broad conversations led by their kids, I should point out, about future tertiary study and how to get it free or at a reduced cost. They talk about doing a trade where you are paid to learn or going straight to work, but her older child is already thinking that university is in their future. So they talk about options to achieve this, what it might cost, if they could win scholarships, what it might cost to live, whether they might have to use a student loan and whether they would receive a student allowance. Now, I'm delighted that they're thinking about this now while they're young. That is how you stay out of any or all student debt. You set money aside for future study costs. Plus, if you have parents who actively encourage curiosity, who can also connect you with others who can advise you, you have a better chance of picking a direction of study that takes you to a place that you want to go. Whew, so righto, that pretty much covers our kōrero, but before I wrap up, I've just got a brief message from today's sponsor. If you want to supercharge your finances with Pocketsmith, they've got a deal for you. Happy Saver listeners get a whopping 50% off your first two months of Pocketsmith's premium plan. To get your deal, go to pocketsmith.com forward slash the happy saver. That's pocketsmith.com forward slash the happy saver. Lucy, Steve and their two teenage children openly talk about money a lot in their family. It comes from them trying to make sense of their own financial upbringing and then joining their financial lives together at the young age of just 19. When they were young, they made a lot of decisions because their backs were up against a wall 
and they now have an understanding that they want their children to head out into the world more prepared than they were. Now, while I understand that failure is a good teacher, I just don't see why you would willingly set your kids up to fail with money. And to be fair, that is not the intention of parents, when it's far easier to do as this couple are doing, and instead just teach your kids some basics from the get-go. So as Lucy and Steve go about their business of earning and spending, they let the kids know what is going on too, a far easier way to do it than taking a class in school. They chat about using money as a tool for living the life you want, based on their values, not something to fight for or compare against others who have more or less. Lucy said that having simple, healthy values and goals are definitely helping them stay focused on what's important as a couple, and hopefully their kids can one day look back and let them know that they have a really positive relationship with money because it was modelled so well by their parents. As I listened to her talk, she reminded me of many other women I've had the pleasure of speaking with for this podcast. They're absolutely on the right track with their systems and processes, and they just need time to let things play out. Lucy, also known as Iron Fisted Mum, is now hot on the heels of paying off the family mortgage within the next 10 years, and the one thing I don't think she allowed for is the snowball effect of debt reduction, and how once you have set your mind to something, a woman like her is almost unstoppable, which is why I'm making the prediction that this whānau of four will continue to live a balanced and enjoyable life, but become completely debt-free well within that 10-year time frame. So keep me updated, Lucy. I would love to be proved correct. And thank you too for speaking with me at such length about your own interesting situation. I so appreciated our chat and I wish you guys all well. So that is all from me this week. And if you want to get in touch, you know you can find me at thehappysaver.com. And please do share this podcast with your friends. It is the best way that people can learn about it. And I would love it if you would obviously talk more about money with your own friends and whanau and help me continue to help others be better with money. So until next time, happy saving.